0: and use promo code bear for 20% off your first order. You know what my favorite text is? A waypoint in the Onyx Hunt app to a goblin turkey.
1: I don't even know how to describe him. Uh, Everybody says, you know, you get a deer in a lifetime. This deer is a deer in many lifetimes.
0: On this episode of the Bear Grease Podcast, we're still telling deer stories. We'll hear about Giannis Poutelis' first whitetail bow kill. We'll hear about the biggest buck Andy Brown ever shot at, which happened to be on Thanksgiving Day. And we'll hear why James Lawrence was late for Christmas dinner in 1998. This episode has a touch of a holiday theme. We'll hear about a 188-inch bow kill that happened in the most surprising of circumstances. The most unusual was the story behind the story and the way that two bow hunters met. All in all, we've got four men that left happy with bucks riding in their trucks and four that didn't. This week, boys, it's a toss-up between heartbreak and satisfaction and i really doubt you're gonna want to miss this one
1: i'm sitting there and i look and here comes this vehicle up the driveway and i don't recognize it and guy gets out and he uh he says you know he introduces himself um i'd like to talk to you about your deer and boy i didn't know how to act
0: It's now the middle of October, and the window of the best hunting of the year across this country is upon us. It's this time when we dream of catching a rut-minded, bad-decision-making whitetail buck slipping around the timber in the daylight. The older I get, the more I realize what an ephemeral time this is. October 15th through the end of November is a short time. Roughly we get 45 days a year of really good buck hunting and every year it slips through my fingers like dry dirt, leaving me wanting more and often wishing I'd done things differently. It's wild to me how these older age class buck deer are so elusive. You can have one living in your backyard and never know he's there. That's why the whitetail is the most sought after big game animal in North America. It ain't because he's easy to hunt, it's because he's hard to hunt, but it's attainable. And that's what keeps us coming back. And I believe that the currency of our deer hunting culture is in our stories. Imagine if you hunted and you could tell no one. For real, think about that. What if you couldn't communicate to another human about the drama, excitement, and difficulty of your hunting? Often people say they hunt to get away from people, which is a true statement, but we don't wanna stay away from people forever. We all want to tell our story, and I think we hunt to stay connected to people. We provide for our families with the meat from the deer that we kill, and those that enjoy hunting are often some of our closest friends. That's why I love these dadgum stories so much. Our first storyteller is none other than the Latvian eagle himself, Janis Putelis of Meat Eater. Giannis is extremely hardworking. He's dedicated to the details, and he's a very positive person. I got a lot of respect for old Giannis, and he's going to tell us about his first whitetail bow kill on his family's land in Wisconsin, and it happened later in his life.
2: So this white-tailed deer hunting story is about my very first white-tailed deer archery buck, which you might find surprising that it was only last year that I killed my first buck with archery equipment. I just didn't get that many opportunities as a young kid at shooting white-tailed bucks with my bow. And um, I moved out west uh, as a 19-year-old and um, didn't really get back into hunting white-tails with my bow until just recently. Uh, where I've been going back to Wisconsin to hunt my family's property. Uh, so this story actually starts back in 2021, which is the first year that I went back to hunt the rut for a full week. Unfortunately that year, the temperatures were extremely warm, like highs in the 70s every single day. I was you know, wearing the lightest pants, with a single base layer shirt, and we just had very, very limited deer movement. I did not figure out the puzzle. I did not get a shot at a buck. I saw one mature buck on a spot that I called the Oak Flat. And I've always wanted to hunt the Oak Flat. Since I was a kid, I used to hear about the Oak Flat. So a little more backstory too. I've been hunting this property since I was probably, however old you need to be to hunt in Wisconsin, 12, I think. And prior to that, I used to just go and come and sit in blinds with my dad. So a lot of history there. But again, I had never really, Put the screws to this uh, property and really try to figure out. But back in 2021, I did. I set cameras. I started learning the place and the oak flat that um, sort of just was special to me for other, for nostalgic reasons. Turned out to be a very good spot to hunt, and so I decided to hunt there. Unfortunately, my first setup there, I set up sort of upwind of three quarters of most of the oak flat, and so when. A mature buck came in there, the way they like to come in on this oak flap. He came in downwind of me and the encounter only lasted a few seconds and I never got a shot off. But I did learn that that's a spot. I did learn like sort of like where at least that buck came in. The next year, fast forward to 2021, I continued to hunt for a whole week in 2021. The weather was hot and there was just simply zero deer movement besides that one mature buck encounter that I had, which was like the second or third night, but I hunted eight mornings, seven evenings, and put a lot of time and effort into it. I learned a lot, but I did not come home with an archery buck. So fast forward to 2022, I just like to preface it with what happened in 21, because it just feels like it's a continuation almost of one hunt. I didn't necessarily climb up into the same tree, but I was on the same Oak flat that I spent a lot of time in, in 2021. But being a person that likes to spend a bunch of time in the woods hunting, it it felt really natural. It was just a continuation. So the very first day of my hunt in 2022, it's much different conditions. It's a high of 50 degrees, probably a low right around freezing, There's like a five to 10 mile an hour wind. It's cool. And it's just, it's a prime day for whitetail buck hunting. Um, It's November 2nd. You know, they should be moving. So I see a few deer, small bucks during the day, a a few does. And I'm self-filming this hunt for an episode of On the Hunt with Giannis Patelis, which you can see on the uh, Meat Eaters YouTube channel. This is my first time ever self-filming a hunt. And every time I have one of these deer come through, I'm filming them, but the screen is so small. It's only like a three inch screen. I can't tell for sure if these deer are in focus. And since like probably my number one job is to make an episode and the number two job is to kill a buck, I need to, I'm really worried that I'm not getting in focus deer footage. So 2 p.m. rolls around and it's, this is bothering me that I'm not getting good footage. I'm like, I got to check a previous clip and and look closely at the detail and make sure that these deer are in focus. So I start doing that. I go into the playback mode and I'm like watching the most recent deer, the small little buck that had come by me. is like a little six point, probably his first year with antlers. And I'm watching the clip of this buck that literally walks almost underneath my stand. And in the clip, I'm watching him and he's walking through the four to six inches of dried oak leaves that are acrossing this oak flat. And as he walks, he's crunching the leaves. And at the same time, I think I hear in the environment around me. And I'm like, Was it, did I hear a deer? Am I hearing the deer in, on the camera? So I pause it and I look around, look over my shoulder, don't see anything. So I go back to watching. And again, I'm just trying to figure out if I'm getting in focus coverage of these deer and I'm playing it again, and the same thing happens. I'm watching the deer walk, and I hear chuck, chuck, chuck. I think, man, is that is around me somewhere. And then I'm thinking, then it finally kind of hits me. I'm like, you should not be doing this right now. It's November 2nd, the rut is on. You need to be hunting, not focusing on this camera and what may or may not be in focus. So as soon as I pause that clip again, I hear, and now I know that there is a deer that is in my vicinity walking in the leaves and it's and I'm not hearing the camera. I look over my shoulder again and sure enough already well within bow range, probably 20 yards or less. There is a nice 10 point. He's like a nice 8 point. And he's got little micro G4s making him a uh, 10 point. And he's coming down the same path that all these other deer had come by and he's actually using the same path that the buck used back in 2021, although he's traveling it the opposite direction. never mind that, he's like well within range and I'm trying to sell film and I'm in playback mode. So I am scrambling to hit buttons and luckily I think uh, there was a higher power that helped me hit the right buttons, get back to record mode. I hit record just in time. I mean, he's literally 10 yards away. I get him in frame, I follow him for maybe 5 or 10 yards, and luckily, he stops to take a few nibbles of acorns. As he does that, I lock off the camera. I'm able to grab my bow, draw my bow, and he takes a few more steps. I give him the, and I shoot him, he runs off. Long story, I find him an hour later after I wait, and it was a nice clean shot, and he went down 70 yards away, but just out of sight. So it happened so fast, I almost didn't have time to get excited. Had I seen him the two minutes prior when, I, when I, while I was dinking around the camera, I probably would have gotten just buck fever, been shaking, couldn't draw my bow, would have felt weak. But as so it happens, he just sort of appeared. And I, in a moment's notice, I had to get the camera on him, draw the bow, take the shot, and it worked out for me. That's the story of my very first archery buck, which just happened in 2022. I was at the uh, tender age of 43 years old. a boy, Giannis.
0: <laughs> if you remember on The Last Bear Grease, Andy Brown of Western Arkansas told us a story about a big, non-typical he killed on Thanksgiving Day on public land. It was the buck with a track as big as a pocket knife story. Except, it turns out that the buck he killed... Didn't have a hoof as big as a pocket knife. Twister, man. Real twister. Well, he told me another story about the biggest buck he ever shot at in his life. Here's a public land tale from Andy Brown.
3: Probably the biggest buck deer that I ever shot at was on Thanksgiving Day. That's been 25 years ago but my family gets together with my sister and her family and we did for years uh thanksgiving day back in those days and we had always had a big deer hunt of course my brother-in-law liked to run dogs and i i do too but i'm you know i'm the guy that i I called him the night before and i said doug i'll be up i'll be up the creek early so just turn the dogs loose when i'll be there you know and so i went in that morning before daylight and and, uh, walked up the creek and there's a big bottom that lays between what we call and the main mountain there. I had got up on the side of the the main mountain where I could watch that bottom. I set my big old gum tree and it it was one of them cloudy misty, you know, it wasn't really raining, but it was just like you won't. I mean, I mean a super morning. Anyway, I was sitting there, and actually the wind for running dogs, I, I, it, it wasn't going to happen where I was at because it would come up the creek. It was right out of the west, the wind was. And I sat there, and uh, about 9 o'clock probably, of course, back in those days, I, I dipped skull, you know, I had my big old dip of skull sitting up there. And, and uh, I was sitting like a big chief Indian with my legs under me against that tree. And I just raised up and spit And when I did, right here behind me, a deer blew at me, close. And I just turned like that, and this little old doe, she wasn't half, this is on Thanksgiving now, she wasn't half grown. I mean, didn't look to me like, although she had a yearling with her, a nubbin buck. But when she wheeled, when she blew, she wheeled in about, I don't know, 40 yards where I was sitting there was just a little old Briary finger come off the mountain And them deer had come off there And I had never seen them Come off into the bottom They're fixing to be right out in my lap I've got the wind right they fixing to be right out in my lap Well I raise up and I spit And when I did she blows When she headed up that ridge There was a buck deer with, Without question A top three in my lifetime That I ever saw Right on her nose and He didn't have a clue I was anywhere in the world Is the thing I mean, he was just dogging her when she went up that ridge. He had his—he was just right on her, and they were, you know, running up that ridge. Well, I just wheel over, and I'm, of course, I'm shooting that 243 featherweight that I've had for years and years and years. I just found me a hole. I knew I was going to have to shoot at him running right there. I just found me a hole out on top of that ridge, and when he hit it, I touched it off, and I shot right in front of him. I mean, I—there's no, no doubt. I mean, I, I shot—I guess too soon, and when I did, he just took two jumps and stopped. Of course he's in that junk like that, and about that time they took off up the mountain, and I'll never forget, I never got to see the deer. I don't know how wide he was. Don't have a, I don't have a clue. In fact, all I'm looking at really is his right side. But that deer, he had them 12, 13 inch tines just stacked up on that right side. I mean, just he was just. It's hard to explain how big that deer was, and he was twice as big as that doe. I mean, he just dwarfed her. I mean, just, it looked like a, it looked like a big doe and a baby fawn is what it looked like. And so up the mountain they're going and I'm trying to get on them. I can't get on them. And about that time I look and here comes a deer running right at me coming off the mountain. And I'm thinking, uh-huh, looky here. He'll be right behind her, you know. And about that time it just kept a coming, kept a coming. It run right up there as close as me and you're sitting right there and it was that nubbin buck. It left that doe. That buck took that doe but but that deer was absolutely huge.
0: Andy loves hunting on Thanksgiving Day. I've always been a little envious of the guys that get to do that. I remember a family I grew up around that had Thanksgiving dinner at their deer camp every year. Man, I could get behind that tradition. Hint, Misty Newcomb. It's usually an interesting story when you ask a seasoned woodsman, about the biggest deer they've ever seen while hunting. And I love this story of Andy's because of the mystery of the size of this deer Andy described. Was it a Boone and Crockett typical? Was it a 160, a 150? We'll never know. But coming from Andy, you believe every word of it because of his capture of the details and how it grabs your attention. What's the biggest buck that you've ever seen in the woods? And I'd like to make a public service announcement. Note that Andy said he used to dip skull. Emphasis on used to. Andy's a smart man. Now, I'm not trying to tell anybody how to live their life, but I am going to tell you, because I love you, that if you're dipping skull, you probably ought to quit, man. As a matter of fact, for several years of my young, dumb life, I dipped skull, too, and I quit. And you can do it, too, and you know that you probably should That preachy little segment was not paid for by the Tobacco Lobby of America, but was funded by the voice of reason in your life, this here Bear Grease podcast. Anyhow, let's get back to our stories.
4: Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit, you match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits not a first aid kit, all right? Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health/meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health/meat eater.
0: Montana Knife Company was founded by Josh Smith. One of the world's most experienced master bladesmiths. He's been making knives for 30 years. Made in the USA and manufactured locally in Montana. The knives come with a multi-generational warranty and free sharpening. Designed, tested, and built by hunters, MKC is a hunting knife company first and foremost. They have the sharpest knives out of the box and the easiest knives to sharpen. And that is the dadgum truth. You better be careful with them when you get them. They are sharp. MKC is a fast growing company. They just hired their 55th employee and are looking to hire about 50 more in the next year or so. I've carried a lot of these Montana knives. And the one that I like the most is their Speed Goat, which is a lightweight hunting knife, just the right size. MKC knives sell out within minutes of being released. So head over to MontanaKnifeCompany.com. They have new knives for sale every Thursday at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. So check their website and sign up for their text and email alerts. That is the best way to find out when they have knives available. Use code BEARGREASE10 for 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. You pour it in your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on Seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. The next storyteller you've heard before too. Moe Shepard is from Northwest Arkansas and he's as good a public land mountain deer hunter as they're making these days. Here's Moe's story
5: of the biggest buck he ever encountered
0: while bow hunting.
5: Well, I'm going to tell you a little hunting story took place back in, I think it was like 2001 or 2002. Anyway, it took place in the rugged Ozark Mountains of northwest Arkansas, out on public land. The story started the year before. I I seen a really large deer cross the road, and I hunted some that year, but didn't find much sign. Didn't know if I was even hunting the deer or not. Then the next year, I saw him again. He was crossing the road in the same place of a nighttime in the dark. And so I made it a point to hunt that deer. I hunted him for, I don't know, five or six days on and off through the opening couple of weeks of bow season. And I thought I had it zeroed in where he was at, where he was traveling a little narrow bench in some really rugged, steep ground. So I made my way down in there that morning, got in there, I had a lock on stand on a tree in there I was gonna hunt out of. It was getting light where you could see the ground, but you still couldn't see much when I got to the the tree. I tied my recurve bow and my quiver and stuff to my pull up cord and climbed the tree. Got up in the stand and well actually before I got up in the stand I could hear leaves crunching. I think maybe when I was fixing to climb up in there but I didn't know if it was that deer or what was making the noise. When I got up, climbed up in the stand and got fastened in I could hear the crunching was really close in and about the time I looked and I could see a deer coming towards me. He wasn't coming off away from the tree he was coming right at the tree i just climb. so i just sat real still in my stand i thought well if it's if it's that deer you know maybe he'll get here close but he was coming right to the tree and like i said he was pretty close at the time because i could see him in the darkness and he stopped made a few more steps then he came right exactly to my bow that i had tied onto that string and when he got there i seen how big he was he was really a big deer <laughs> It was still so dark I couldn't see how many points he had other than he just had some pretty big massive horns. And he sniffed at that bow for a few seconds, and I'm sitting up there in my tree just nervous as I'll get out. And I think, well, it's gonna be alright, it's gonna be alright. He's just gonna mosey on by and I'm gonna be able to put my bow up and maybe get a shot at him. Well, about that time then he he made out, I guess he scented my bow where I'd handled it that morning or something other. He just whirled and bounded about two or three bounds and then just stopped. And blowed real big, and then just started walking off. As he started walking off, I went to pull my bow up, and I finally got the bow up. And he was still out there inside of me, but he wasn't in my bow range of, of me anyway. And it was getting light then; I could see him pretty good, but still couldn't tell. other than He was really big, one of the biggest deer I guess I'd ever seen in a, out in the woods. And uh, got my bow up there. Got my quiver, got my air out, put it on my bow, and I was shaking so bad. I don't think I could have shot him if he'd have come back. I might have calmed down, you know, if he'd have came back. But uh, that deer just walked on off, out of sight. And I thought, well, he didn't spook very bad. He didn't spook very bad, you know. This is his travel corridor. I'll, I'll, I'll get his crack at him the rest, sometime during the rest of the season. Well, I hunted the rest of that year for him and hunted some of the next year and never saw that deer again, never saw him cross the road. Don't know if he left Plum out there or... Or what happened but you know that's hunting that hunt really stands out to me that's why it's in my memory swell is because i was really anxious to hunt and thought i had this deer figured out and apparently i did have him figured out because he came right where he should have that morning but whether i was a little late getting there or whether he was just early and he was a pretty much nocturnal deer and probably going back to his bedding area but it just stands out because he was definitely a would probably have been the best deer I'd ever taken with my recurve bow to this day. I've never taken one that's that large, and uh, it just stands out in my mind as, as that's the one that got away from me. So,
0: The one that got away. I've started compiling a formal list in my deer hunting career of the ones that got away. Sometimes sit down and write out the encounters with mature bucks, and I'm not talking little bucks, mature bucks that were in the strike zone and were killable deer, but you didn't kill them. I wrote out 11 encounters that if things had gone just slightly different, I'd have had a big mature buck. And what it did for me was make me grateful for the bucks that I have taken home. This next fella we all know bear grease hall of famer james lawrence is a mountain hunter deluxe he's humble and he's one of those guys that never made any press for himself but years ago when i met him i knew he was special here's james telling us the story of his christmas hunt i told you this was a holiday themed episode but you didn't believe me did you (laughs) here's james (laughs) What about the big one you killed on Christmas Day? Was oh, it, yeah. D- tell me that story. Tell The only, me the... Reason, the
6: only reason I remember it, it's mounted, and it was, you know, killed Christmas Day, 1998. And I would supposed to have been off back to family for Christmas dinner at 2 o'clock. I'd left the truck at the foot of the mountain and just worked my way up the mountain where the wind was, and then I was going back, hunting back to the west. Seeing that at the time I was running out of time, so I started easing off the mountain, found a good ridge to come off, and for some reason, how if I'd been trying to slip up on this deer, I could have never done it. Conditions was just right. Eased off, and I just stopped. And when I looked down in the hollow to my left, a steep hollow, there was a buck grazing on the acres. I mean, you know how they'll just walk around and move the leaves, and a decent, a decent eight point. And I was using that uh, muzzleloader Thompson, Hawking and 50 caliber. I got a good rest in it. I didn't try to stop him or nothing. I just called him when he did stop. I shot. Smoke cleared. The deer went down. I started to reload, and when I started to reload on the next ridge, this deer just come up out of his bed and standing. And it was, it was a long range shot for a 50 caliber muzzleloader, but I couldn't resist because it was. It was about. Iron, iron sights. The yeah, iron sights. Yes. It was. Uh, it was a buck I'd been hunting, but I wasn't expecting him where he was at. I knew the deer was in there, and I didn't know how big he was, but I knew he was a good one. I'd seen him a couple of times He, when I was still hunting. He was just up, and maybe one jump, he's out of sight, and I could see the wreck. I reloaded, had a little trouble putting those number 11 caps on it. It's not like the primers we have now. Anyway, took me a bit to do it, and the deer just stood there. But I guess he was watching the smoke from the first shot because, I mean, he just stood up and... Standing in his bed, just stood up. I got a rest. and uh, How far was it? Pushing 100 yards, probably. Just visualizing it now. Yeah, it was. But it's standing shot, and I had a rest. And it might have just been my day, but when the smoke cleared, when I shot, the deer just went down in his bed that he just got out of. He didn't run off the buck over the first buck. Down a little bit of thrashing, but I mean it just, and this deer just went down in his bed, didn't kick, didn't do nothing. He went down and I knew I was already in trouble because it was after two o'clock and I was supposed to be for Christmas dinner. And here I am up on the side of a mountain with, with bucks on the ground. I wasn't real popular when I did get home, but it didn't matter, you know. I get over to that buck and started counting the points and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven on the right seven on the left. I had a 14 point down on the ground on Christmas Day in 1998. It was was a happy Christmas for me and my mother. Even though I was late for Christmas dinner, my mother said that uh, she would love to pay for the deer being mounted if I would use her pasture Mm -hmm. and did. You've seen a good job. He was taxidermist, but mother mounted the deer for me.
0: James only has three deer mounted, and I know for a fact that two of those mounts came from someone insisting to the point of paying for the mount. Years ago, when I asked him about the 14 point, the first thing he said was that his mother paid for the mount. It must have meant a lot to him. We're about a third of the way through this podcast, and the remaining two stories are robust. They're both complicated and involve some joy and heartache. You're going to enjoy them, but I think we'll also learn something from them. The next storyteller is my friend Andy Thrillkill, also from Western Arkansas. Andy told me the first part of the story in 2012. And 10 years later, in the spring of 2022, he told me the last part of the story. When I heard it, I knew I had to get him to tell it.
7: see. I got permission to hunt this private piece. Um, it was a hay lease. We had cows at the time about every evening when we'd go up there to get a bale of hay or something, there'd be just a whole bunch of does. So we knew that there was a bunch of does and it was a good place to hunt. So eventually I ended up asking for permission. And so I put quite a bit of time and effort into it. I put a buddy stand up there and it was a really, uh, it was a killer, uh, setup because we predominantly get these Southwest winds around here. And, uh, you could come up from the creek, you could park down where you'd pull in and you'd walk up across the creek and up into this little pasture. You'd kind of come up a rise into the lower pasture. I had the buddy stand right at the mouth of that plateau field and it was, it just set up perfect cause you could climb right up and scope it out and see if anything was in there and you could climb up in that buddy stand.
0: Andy hunted the property for a couple of years and killed a nice 135 inch buck in 2011. And he learned that the deer bedded in a pine thicket adjacent to the hay field and often entered the field between a ridge and a creek, funneling the deer down a dim logging road.
7: Anyhow, the piece of property proved to be like a really good piece of property. And I had killed that buck in 2011 on that field. 2010, I'd killed the very first really what I'd call a big buck. I'd read a book called Mapping Trophy Bucks by Brad Herndon. And I just, it teaches you how to read topos and that kind of stuff and where to set up based on different topography. And it was like my first introduction to map reading and hunting with a strategy versus just kind of peddling around and looking for sign, basically. Because Herndon's uh, theory is not really, he don't hunt sign. Uh, Herndon's kind of like, you know, the signs typically in the bottoms were it's beautiful and you want to hunt, but the wind's never consistent. So he was always a big uh, saddle guy. He was always get on the top where the wind's consistent. Cause even if the sign's not there, if it's close, eventually they're going to slip through that, that saddle. And so I adopted that theory. And then I learned about Dan Infault and I learned about his mountain hunting series and how he uses thermals. And he talks about how they bed based on North and South winds, man, if that wasn't revolutionary, because it was like, you took Brad Herndon's strategy of just use hunting the saddles and that kind of stuff. Well, then you learned when to hunt those saddles based on the wind, like, cause Infault's theories about, okay, if it's a south wind, it'd be better on the north side. Or if it's a north wind, it'd be better on the south side.
0: Andy grew up in a hunting family, but it wasn't till he was an adult that he started to study about deer and started becoming successful. And he's become very successful. Lots of Andy's hunting is done on public land, and he's learned how to kill mature bucks. Anyhow, it was during this time that he started getting pictures of a unique racked young deer.
7: I had actually got pictures of him in 2011, and you could tell he was only like, I mean, I'm not trying to be like deer expert here, but you could tell he was young deer. You know, I'd say three and a half just because he had a humongous, like I'd say 130-inch rack. He had kickers, and, and you, he was trashy, but he was he was young-looking. I was like, holy cow, you just don't see that around here. You could see the real potential in it, and I would have killed him that year if I'd had a chance, no question about it. I just I don't know that I could have passed him up. Anyhow, thankfully, I didn't, and I'm certain that this is the same deer— in 2012, because he he had grown to like 145, is what I estimate. Close to pushing 150, had like 13 points, like a mainframe 10 with a bunch of kickers. Had a split G3 with the kicker, like a five, four or five inch kicker coming off that that G2 there. Had a split eye guard on one side. Just a really impressive deer. But his pictures were always at night coming out into that field. And uh, I knew that bottom that was right off to the uh, west of that plateau field. The backside of that, there was a huge thicket of like sweet gum and it had just grown up. Used to be field and they let that kind of progressively get overtaken. And it was probably two acres, but it was just thicket. And I knew that's where the deer bedded. And they would come out of the backside of that into that bottom, which was a wooded bottom along the the creek. They would just come out of there and I knew the, the bucks would bed up in that pine thicket on the hill. But all the stuff I'd read from Herndon just had me scared to death to get down in an area that that was a bottom that I knew the wind swirled because I'd tried to hunt it before and it always boogered up and always ended up swirling. What I had figured out by the couple of times I'd went in there and figured I'd blown it was you get in real early on a calm morning, eight thirty nine o'clock, you can have a good, pretty much no wind. But by 8 or 9 o'clock, the first swirl of the wind you feel you need to get down and leave. But you can get like an hour or two of decent hunting in a blair area that doesn't get good wind if it's that morning.
0: Andy decided to make an aggressive move based upon what he'd learned about the short window of time that you get some good wind or no wind in the morning. He was doing it because the buck just wasn't hitting the field in the daytime and the deer were bedding off the property in that pine thicket. In early November, the conditions became just right for him to make his big move.
7: It had rained, so it was, like, perfect. I mean, it was, like, not super cold, but it was probably 40 degrees, and it had light rain all night coming in November 2nd or something. It was money, so I was just all excited, and I was in that stand before daylight. And so I had my stand just right on that logging road. was just kind of sitting there thinking probably not going to happen, you know. It's just You always think it ain't going to happen until it happens. And i um, sitting there. It was probably 30 minutes or so after daylight. A little yearling buck walked right down that trail and right underneath me. I was like, okay. But nonetheless, the rain had just quit, and it's overcast and foggy next to the creek. I mean, it's just a dream scenario, really. But anyhow, I'm sitting there, and sure enough, I look, and there he is coming down the road. And I wasn't sure it was him because all the pictures I had were old flash cameras. And so his horns were like light brown, like you see normal. I guess just the dart and the wet, they were chocolate. He's just walking down the road and I start like really getting kind of amped up. I only had my stand about 16 feet up. And when you got a buck of that caliber right below you, it feels about like you're about eight foot up. You feel like you could reach out and grab him or jump on him. And so I get drawed back. It was just a, a rookie mistake, kind of. I mean, not that I was necessarily a rookie, but as far as bow hunting, I'm really, that's probably my least seasoned weapon as far as what I'm good with. I like my rifle, I like, I like my muzzleloader. I bow hunt because that's the only thing open at the time. But I like weapons that give me the biggest chance. When he hit that hole, I just shot, and he was walking. And so where what would have been double lung at one step made a liver, and that's what it happened, is a uh, zip through him and he bolted over there about 10 yards. And, of course, I've learned something else from that, is I always kept my quiver off, and twice it's burned me. On that buck also right here, he's standing over there 15 yards, quartering away, and I'm thinking, he's fixing to start wobbling. That's what I was hoping for. And then he just tucked his tail, and he started to walk away, and he was going a little bit northeast, and then he kind of made a turn back to the southeast, the direction he came up back towards the pine thicket.
0: Andy gets down and finds his arrow. He was using a fixed three-blade head, and it's covered in dark blood, which he knows is liver blood. He knows he needs to wait to track the deer, so he calls in some help, and they wait seven hours before they take up the track, which was good. What would you have done in this scenario?
7: I backed out, and the guy I was talking about, Alex, I called him because he's my blood tracker because i'm colorblind i can't i can't blood trail can't see red and so he trailed it and his last blood trail showed a hook going back up even more so than what i visually saw him and so that was our last blood and at the time i had a friend he had a dog he brought that dog up and uh had a gps collar on he didn't he didn't track on a leash he just put a gps collar on it like a coon dog and he would let it run and he said when it stopped that's when he found the deer got over in the neighbor's pasture, and he looked over to the pond. And so I called the neighbor, went over there, and when I circled that pond, I found looked like intestines, A little piece of intestine on the dam of the pond. And I was certain that that bucket somehow got in there. I don't know what I was thinking, but I donned a wetsuit. I borrowed a buddy's wetsuit and I got out there, ended up being like chest deep. And I just walked around and it was spring clear. You could see the bottom. He was in the kayak. And I was in a wetsuit. We were paddling around that pond looking for that deer. We never found it. And I walked all them thickets up and down the creeks, and I kept looking for years, for years. I mean years I hunted and just would walk them ravines and think, I'm going to stumble across this thing.
0: They couldn't find the buck. Andy put in massive amounts of effort, grid searching. He used a tracking dog. He swam a pond in a wetsuit. But like a vapor, the deer vanished. To this day, Andy knows that if he had grunt-stopped the deer, he'd have made a good shot. What mistake have you made in the deer woods that you wish you could redo? Uh, anyway, yeah, that was November
7: 2012, and I went through 10 years of just, like, heartbreak, and just be driving down the road and be thinking just, eh just be thinking in my head that's all it took like that's all I lacked that was it That's was what stood between me and, and killing that deer because if I would have stopped that deer I would have made a good shot it was a chip shot but uh, I, I can't make five yard walking shots I don't even want to try it sure I can if I had to but you're gonna screw up half of them at least probably more than that so I just uh that taught me a lesson that day I, I do not take a walking shot I won't do it So 10 years later, April, 2022, me and my boy, I think it was the youth turkey hunt. And we had decided I took him up to that farm. There was always usually a couple of turkeys that would run around there. And uh, so we went up there, didn't have any luck that morning. And we walked the creek. We got on the creek, and just started playing around, picking up rocks and kicking around. Got way off pretty far away from the, uh, our truck. And I said, well, let's just, let's just cut over this hill right here. I cut across there when I did. That's when I stumbled across the deer that I'd shot in November, 2012. And I thought at the time as I saw, ooh, somebody's sick, somebody's sick over that deer. And uh, turns out I was sick over that deer for the last 10 years. And uh, sure enough, as I walked up on it, the deer that I had shot in 2000 and 12 had a, a distinct amount of kickers. He had like a four-inch kicker that came off the G2, the left G2. He had a split uh, G3 on the left antler, had a hooked eye guard on the right side, and it had remnants of all that. It had The, uh, the squirrels had chewed off a significant amount of it, but enough intact that you could tell all of those different characteristics were undeniable. So we grabbed that deer, and I just I sat there in awe. And as we were walking out, or my son said, uh, he said, hey, Dad, that's a 10-year that's track. And I just thought, that's exactly what that is. That was a 10-year track job right there. We've been looking for that deer a long time. Uh, the deer ended up being, I, I pull up my Onyx, and I did a straight line from my tree stand to where I found the deer, and it ended up being about 270 yards. And uh, he had went back right Approximately where I thought he went back. One of the reasons we never found him is just the fact that the dog had went a different direction. That it all came kind of focused our energy that direction because we're thinking he's surely going to find it. And there's no really, it's not his fault that he didn't. There's a million different factors, including it was over 24 hours when he finally came up.
0: You hate to hear a story of a wounded buck getting away. This isn't good. But in telling it, we can learn a bunch of stuff. The moral of the story was don't shoot a walking deer, but grunt stop them. Secondly, in the excitement of the track job, there were areas that they overlooked when grid searching, but it wasn't for lack of trying. And the partial intestine on the bank of the pond is still a mystery. Perhaps it was the remnants of a hawk kill. Who knows? But it didn't have anything to do with the buck. I think sometimes we're so desperate to find a clue we can make one out of something that isn't. I know I've done that. And for the record, Andy didn't want to make it sound like he was blaming the dog for not finding the deer. The old pooch did the best he could with a very tough track, and Andy was grateful for his buddy that drove so far to come and help him track. But they did put too much stock in the direction the dog went which was the total wrong direction. Surprisingly, the rack is in decent shape for it laying on the forest floor for 10 years. That's the most surprising part of this story to me. And clearly, the buck knew just where to go to bed down beyond the normal travel patterns of humans because nobody had been there in 10 years. Thanks for sharing your heartbreak with us, Andy. And I want to say something about liver shot deer. I've recovered, I think, 100% of the deer that I've shot in the liver. You need to give them time, just like Andy did. Typically, they're going to be inside of 300 yards. They're not going to leave a ton of blood, but they're going to leave some. So the main thing is give them time, and you may have to do some grid searching. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about Family Finances 101? No one? Yeah, me neither. Like the importance of a will or college savings plan, or even life insurance or estate planning. We have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Life insurance is important to me. It just gives me security in knowing that if anything happened to me, my family would remain financially stable in my absence. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You can be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash bear. That's meatfabric.com slash bear, M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash bear. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states, prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Pay attention here because this
4: is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work. Get 15% off at TWC.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at TWC.health slash meat eater.
0: Montana Knife Company was founded by Josh Smith, one of the world's most experienced master bladesmiths. He's been making knives for 30 years, made in the USA and manufactured locally in Montana. The knives come with a multi-generational warranty and free sharpening. Designed, tested, and built by hunters, MKC is a hunting knife company first and foremost. They have the sharpest knives out of the box and the easiest knives to sharpen. And that is the dadgum truth. You better be careful with them when you get them. They are sharp. MKC is a fast-growing company. They just hired their 55th employee and are looking to hire about 50 more in the next year or so. I've carried a lot of these Montana knives And the one that I like the most is their Speed Goat, which is a lightweight hunting knife, just the right size. MKC knives sell out within minutes of being released. So head over to MontanaKnifeCompany.com. They have new knives for sale every Thursday at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. So check their website and sign up for their text and email alerts. That is the best way to find out when they have knives available. Use code BEARGREASE10 for 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people. Our final story exemplifies a truth as old as time, and it's that there are always two sides to any story, and the perspective of the other side is often hard to understand unless you put yourself in their shoes and actually listen. The next storyteller is named Harvey Rainbolt. Originally from North Louisiana, he moved to Northwest Arkansas in 2011. Harvey's going to tell about his hunt for a world-class whitetail. But we'll get the rare opportunity to hear the other side of a story from another hunter that Harvey didn't know existed. Here's Harvey Rainbolt. I grew up in a, in a house that if you
1: didn't kill it, catch it, or grow it, you just about didn't eat. My dad was probably one of the best outdoor sportsmen that I know all around. Fishing, hunting, he was really amazing and he taught me a lot. We grew up in a small community that everybody knew each other. And when you do that, sports, hunting, fishing is all competitive. That would translate easily over into our deer camp. And also at deer camp, so we would always have magazines that had these just enormous deer in there. You know, and when I grew up in South Arkansas and North Louisiana, you did not see deer like that. You're sitting there looking at 160, 180, 200 inch deer in these magazines and you're a kid and you're like, wow. And it never failed. There would always be somebody that would come by and say, hmm, I don't think you could hold it together if one like that walked out. And that stuck in my head for years. Well, life throws you a curveball. 2010, I leave South Arkansas and I moved to Northwest Arkansas. Now I left pine fields and thickets and moved into an area that had mountains and ridges and oak trees and terrain I had never hunted. So I was definitely out of my element. So for 2010, I didn't do a whole lot of hunting. Found a little bit of public ground, trying to learn how to hunt up here. And then in 2011, I got really lucky and found about a 50-acre plot with
0: a house on it that had been abandoned for seven years. This is where Harvey's story really begins. In late 2011, he ends up moving into the house and gaining permission to hunt the abandoned 50 acres. And anybody that knows whitetails knows that that's a good scenario. And in an odd twist, this property is also where our other hunter enters the story. And the other hunter is me. So I had access to a small piece of property. And directly to the north of that property was a 50-acre abandoned farm. And I knew that this place had been abandoned. I knew the people that used to live there and didn't anymore. It was grown up. It was big timber. And it was a tough decision for me. But (laughs) I knew some of these neighbors used it kind of like it was their own. But I had decided I was not going to hunt that property because I didn't have permission to hunt it. And I killed the biggest deer that I ever killed. And I watched it come off of that property onto the property that I could hunt. And I killed that deer in 2007. And so this 50-acre farm was holding older age deer, and it had become a sanctuary. When I say it was a hard decision not to hunt the land, I hope you know what I mean. Nobody lived there. Nobody cared. And I knew it was a killer property, and it would have been easy to justify hunting it but I didn't. I had actually killed two big deer that I had watched walk off of that place and it had basically become my own personal buck sanctuary. But what I didn't know was that a deer killing seasoned hunter named Harvey Rainbolt was now living there. It's early October, 2012. Here's Harvey. I remember on October the 8th, it was my dad's birthday, he
1: had passed. And I called my mom and she asked me, she said, you know, have you even been hunting? I said, no, she said, well, your dad would be really disappointed. And I said, yeah, you're right. So the next day I get up and it's beautiful. It was like 10 years ago to almost today. It was the ninth, today's what, the 11th. It was a day just like this, it was beautiful. It was a little bit warm, but the trees had done started turning And I'm like, you know, I ought to go. I should. The day before, um, the reason I called my mom was the day before on on his birthday, I had come down that hill and I saw a really good buck standing out there in that field. I'm like, man. Looking back on it now, probably 130-inch deer. So... The next day, long story, I go and get my, my hunting license. hadn't even bought them. So I go to Walmart, and I'm standing there talking to the guy. And, I, of course, up here I have an accent. So immediately he's like, well, where are you from? And I told him, you know, south Arkansas. And he said, oh, yeah, me too. And we talked about first one thing or another. And he said, look, I'm going to tell you something. These guys up here don't tell you this, but, you know, back home, you have to hunt those deer. These deer up here, if you see one on a trail today, the odds are he'll be on that trail he's going to wherever he's going on the same trail not like they do back home i'm like really he's like yeah, yeah they're pretty pretty reliable i'm like okay well i go back to the house and i don't really give it too much of a thought uh, i grab my stuff and i'm go sit in this observation stand uh look out it's beautiful you know i'm sitting there looking out across the field i'm there just a few minutes and a couple of does and a small buck that i hadn't seen come out and they come to me about 30 yards in front of me uh, to a little feeder that I had put out. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be a, a really good day. I'm glad I came. It was almost like the guy from Walmart knew what he was talking about. I look up after being there for 40 minutes and I can see a big body deer moving down the hill and I'll be darned. It's that buck. I'm like, oh man, this is actually Mike fixing to happen. He's heading in the right direction. And to my right, there was a big Hickory nut tree, solid gold, leaved out, but you could see through it. He came out straight in front. And when he came out into the field, I noticed that he looked postured up like he was angry about something, went over to a locust tree, and literally just started wearing it out in the middle of that field. Well, instead of coming straight to me and to the feeder and to the does that were in front of me, he goes to my right. And you could tell that this deer was just staring at something over here to my right. And the next thing I heard was the loudest clash of horns that I've ever heard. But as I looked through those limbs on that tree, I saw more horn and antler flashing and more hide and more white flags flying than I have ever seen. I mean, they were getting after it. They were not playing and you could tell that the deer that he had met up with was massive compared to him. I couldn't tell a lot about him. All I could tell is every time they hit, you could just see a big, wide, white rack just thrashing this deer. I'm like, oh, man, I, have, I didn't know what to think. I have never seen anything like that, and I still had not got a good, clear view of him, but I could tell he was huge.
0: I could tell... He was huge, Harvey said. I'd say that'd be a good descriptor. It's important to remember that this is Harvey's very first hunt on the property. That's kind of mind blowing to me in the wildest part of this story. And what he wouldn't have known as he saw glimpses of the wide white rack buck was that the bow hunter just south of him knew every point and nuance of that deer's rack, but not because he'd ever seen him with his own eyes. He had known the deer since it grew its first discernible rack. He'd named the deer. Everyone in his family knew its name. He knew where the buck lived. He knew when the buck would show up on camera. He'd spent uncountable hours trying to kill the deer. And he knew the buck's unbelievable history of antler development, and that he was me. To this day, if someone told me this story that you're about to hear, I'd probably call them a liar or at least mistaken, but this is exactly how it happened. I want to introduce you to moose, and to do it, we need to go back to 2008. In the summer of 2008, I got a picture of a young deer that I believe was two and a half years old that had a very unusual rack. He had a big section of palmation on his right antler that it looked like a miniature moose antler. And so I called this deer Moose, but it's two and a half years old. And when a deer is that age around here, I mean, whether he's going to live to maturity is really just a gamble. He's going to get hit on the road, killed by another hunter. This is not an area where we're managing for deer at all. But I took note of the deer. Well, that winter... I started getting pictures of the deer, and he was bone skinny. And when I say bone skinny, I mean literally you could see his hips, you could see his ribs, and what had happened to him it was very clear. He had broke his right front foot such that around his hoof, it was swelled up, probably bigger than a Coke can. And this deer, in my mind, was undoubtedly going to die i had a tag in my pocket and i thought man i'm gonna put this deer out of his misery you know it's a cool little rack and i'm gonna kill this deer so i tried with all my might to kill that deer and i couldn't kill him well the season comes and goes and i don't think much of it and i imagine the deer's dead well 2009 rolls around and i put out some cameras on a food plot some cameras over some feed And just have a couple of nice deer coming in nothing major but in December 2009 I get pictures of a 10-point buck that has a kicker and the deer looks oddly familiar and I recognize it to be the deer that I thought was dead and assumed was dead but This deer, I identify it by his horn structure, but mainly by the shape of his broken leg. He had a very distinct, broke leg. And this is Moose, and I'm shocked, because he has turned into a really nice, probably 125-inch, 10-point buck that's now three and a half years old. That year, I had killed two deer, and so I did not have any buck tags. So I didn't even go after the deer, but I took note of him, got a lot of pictures of him that winter. 2010 rolls around, and I noticed a trend that I did not get pictures of this buck until after the rut. And sure enough, just like clockwork, I could almost tell you the day. It was usually around November the 30th, and Moose shows up. And this year, he is a, what I believe to be 145 inch 10 point with stickers. The deer is now four and a half years old and just a beautiful deer. And he, do, he, know, he, he still has the distinct broke leg, but he also now has apparently broken his back leg too. He has a big, huge knot on his back leg. I take note of the deer and in my drivings and, and going around as a hunter does, I see the buck about a mile away one night on the side of the road underneath the street lights of a road. And I recognize that is Moose. And he's a mile away from where I'm getting pictures of him. And I know there's a little farm right back there close to where the steer is at. And I just know that that deer is on the farm. So I go and I write a letter to the landowner. I just looked up the guy. It was before I had well before Onyx was around. I looked up the guy's address, his name, sent him a letter, introduced myself, and told him that I was after a specific deer that I believed was on his property, and I'd like to bow hunt. I just laid it all out for him. I sent it to him. Didn't get a response, and so a week later, I end up going to this man's house and going to his door, introducing myself. I'm the guy that sent you the letter. And he he agrees to let me hunt his property. And I end up becoming good friends with this family. So late in 2010, I start, now have two data points of where this buck is. And I start hunting him down on this other farm, a mile away. And I start getting pictures of the deer on that place almost immediately. In Arkansas, we can hunt deer until the end of February, and by now it's January. I'm starting to see this deer on camera fairly regularly, and I know that it, in low temperature times, these deer will come out and feed during the daylight in this area if it's if it doesn't get above 32 degrees. So I was targeting these super brutal cold days and I was even doing all day sits and I hunt the deer and actually have the deer come into 25 yards one time when he was four and a half years old, 145 inch 10 And he sees me up in the tree. He runs off. I continue to hunt the deer the rest of the year. And one day, I believe it was January the 7th, I see a deer limping across the field with a group of does. And I put up my by nose and I realize it's Moose and he's shed his antlers. And Moose had an incredibly distinct gait. He limped in the back and he limped in the front. The deer, it was a miracle that he was even alive. It was a miracle he could jump fences. And I think this deer is probably going to die. He won't live to be five and a half. Well, that day in the stand, when I saw him coming across that field, I literally climbed down from the stand mid-afternoon and went home. My season was over hunting for moose. Fast forward to 2011, and I get a picture of a clean-racked, probably 135-inch eight-point. And... It's a big beautiful deer, and I immediately recognized it, but I did not believe what I was seeing because usually as these deer get older they get more non-typical they get bigger. this deer had become extremely typical it was a hundred percent moose based upon his broke leg in the front, broke leg in the back and I kid you not now he had a third break on his other front foot I don't know how this deer was breaking legs but He had broke three different legs. And the deer has now dropped down to 135-inch deer. I hunt the deer in 2011 and never see him. I get pictures of this deer in multiple places. I'd now gained access to another place to hunt. Basically, this deer was running about a mile-long corridor, and I was getting pictures of him in several places, but I never could see the deer in the daylight. He was just a master at evading me. So 2011 now comes and goes. The deer is five and a half. Now we enter 2012. On a new property, I was starting to get pictures of these deer in the summer. I kind of found where they were at. And in August, I get a picture on my camera and I call my father-in-law and I said, I think I've got a 200 inch deer on camera, a wild non-typical. And I'm, I'm, Talking to him on the phone as I'm looking at the photos, like I just got him. And as I'm looking and see more and more photos of this deer, I recognize the deer. It is Moose. And man, I want to tell you right now that if you walked up to me on the street and told me the sequence of antler development on this buck, I would tell you that you were wrong. I would say that's not possible. you're you're mixing up deer that's not the same deer he didn't go from 145 inch 10 point to a clean 135 inch 8 point to now a potentially 180 inch plus non-typical I would have said you are wrong my friend but I'm going to tell you that's exactly what happened moose turned into a freak show buck and the deer is now six and a half years old I am ecstatic. I'm nervous. This is now the the fourth year quest after this deer. I mean, I'm I'm eight up with this deer. And, and at the time in my career in the outdoor industry, I was focusing on whitetails. I kinda got my start in the outdoor world writing for North American Whitetail and and writing about bow hunting deer, which really, like I said before, was my first love and still is. I mean, a a massive part of my life. To say that this deer had kind of engulfed me would be an understatement. Well, I felt like I knew where this deer was living. And on October the 8th, I go into this property and I'm gonna hang a stand in a spot that I had never been. And it's just just a small little, probably two acre thicket. And I know more than set foot in that thicket And I jumped Moose. He was within 15 yards of me. And I watched Moose run to the southeast, which is directly towards where I first got pictures of the deer in the abandoned farm. The only time I ever saw Moose wearing his six and a half year old headgear was on October 8th. And he was headed towards the abandoned farm, or at least I thought it was abandoned. Turns out it wasn't anymore. Now we're going to jump back in the stand with Harvey on October the 9th, 2012, on his first hunt on this 50 acres. He's just seen a 130 inch deer and a giant fighting right in front of him. He's in shock.
1: So they're fighting, they would pause for just a second. The deer that are here in front of me at 30 yards are keyed in on them. So I'm in the stand, I can do whatever I want to, no deer are even looking in my direction. So I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't normally do anything this early in the hunt, but I need these deer to come to me and they're fighting. So what do I do? Man, I dig in my bag and I pull out a grunt call. I never use a grunt call that early. I don't have anything to lose. And I, bah, boy, I hit it. Well, they stopped. And I could see them pause and kind of move in my direction. So I hit it again. When I did the smaller buck, here he come. I could see him. So I went ahead and got stood up, got ready. They were going to be at like anywhere between 15 to 20 yards. So I got up, I got ready, and I could see the other deer coming behind him. And again, I, I mean, I was looking through all that stuff, so I couldn't tell just how big he was, but you could still tell oh my this is something like I've never seen before. I'll get ready and I'm locked on to where these deer are fisting to come out. I even I don't even look over to my right anymore I'm just locked on to this one spot and the first deer come out and yeah he was a good deer and any other time I would have shot him. He come out broadside he looked away from me and towards the does it was perfect there he was and all I'm thinking is that other one is fitting to do the same thing. Well, I was so buried into it, when this deer walked towards the other one, he had his head going away from me, and the big deer came out, I was already drawn back. And he was almost facing dead towards me. And I'm at full draw, and I done been holding it for a minute, and I have one choice. I have to either shoot this deer, or I have to let down. One something that is fixing to give, and he's fisting to be gone. I know for a fact that's the first and only shot that I have ever taken on a deer that was full frontal like that. And all I could think of was that little twist of hair right there at the base. That's my aiming point, that's where it has to be. So I just buried it in there and let it go. When I let it go, the deer reared back like a horse would and twisted and turned to the right and stopped for just a second. And I thought I had missed. Now, the grass was waist, chest high out there, and, and then I see him walk back the way he came from. And I could see his tail wing every
0: once in a while. See it rings
1: one oh, time.
0: I've wondered before where I was at the instant that Moose got shot. At the time, I was running a landscape company, so I was probably working. In the grand scheme of life, killing or not killing a deer isn't a big deal. But on a micro level, and in my world, this was a big deal. Honestly, it was too big of a deal. And my four-year quest had just come to an abrupt stop, and I didn't even know it.
1: So I followed a little bit of blood through all that and, and got to the edge, and I'm starting to see a little bit more blood, and I look up there, and there's this deer, about 20, 30 yards inside the wood, butted up against this big moss-covered rock bluff, and it just, to see him laying there, it was unbelievable. That was the first time I actually got a look, and I was almost scared to walk up there. I'm like, man, I've, you know, I've never seen anything like that. So I stayed there for a while, you know. Uh, excuse me. <clears throat> Talk to dad for a minute. Got back to the, back to my truck. Just adrenaline will make you sick at your stomach. Testify, it will. So I get back to the truck and I'm just sick. I'm so happy. It was pandemonium, absolute pandemonium. None of us ever seen a deer like that. And it's still at the moment, it, it It's overwhelming. When you do something like that and you answer a lifelong question, you know, and it did. In that moment, it dawned on me, Bud, you just answered your question. Not only did you take it when it mattered, that's a difficult shot to take. You know, so it was a completion to a, a whole life of wondering, are you good enough? Can you really come through when it matters?
0: the deer would end up gross scoring 188 and 3 eighths inches with 33 scorable points and many points that were under an inch that didn't count. I think you can hear it in Harvey's voice. He knew what he'd done and how special this deer was. He'd been waiting his whole life for this moment.
1: Overall, the deer had 33 scorable points. I don't even know how to describe him. Uh, everybody says, you know, you get a deer in a lifetime. This deer is a deer in many lifetimes. If you took, I guess, maybe a, a, a main frame eight point that was, i say 19 to 20 inches wide, gave that rascal some 10 or 12 inch brow tines that forked up at the top and then take all of his G2s and put stickers all over the ones on his left side. I think there were five huge stickers that looked like a, more like a turkey foot or something that came off of his G2 on his left side. He was actually uh, a really, uh, he was skinny. It was, we get him there, we get him cleaned. The deer had three of his legs had been broken. One of them had been broken in two separate places. And I don't mean just snapped a little bit. I mean massive. I remembered afterwards seeing the deer move towards me through all the limbs and everything else that he had kind of a funny gait. But I thought it was because he was posturing at that other deer and posturing at me for grunting. But it wasn't. This deer was actually, yeah, I don't know how he got along. Yeah, he had, yeah, he was tough, he was old, it was just a massive deer. And after it, I get him up to the house and we're looking at this, and I can't help but think, man, you know, I wonder if anybody else around here knows that anything like this even exists around here. Now I had moved up here, I didn't know anybody, I didn't know too many places to go, but every day that I went to work, I passed a place called Mountain Man Pawn Shop.
0: There's a there's a really cool pawn shop in Fayetteville, Arkansas called Mountain Man Pond. These guys are my friends down there. And about the probably the thirteenth of October, I pull into Mountain Man just randomly, and they put pictures up of all the bucks that have been entered into the big buck contest. And I walk in there and I'm kind of just Perusing the leaderboard And there's not very many deer there yet Because it's early October Most of the deer hadn't been killed And I will never forget Ever forget What it felt like When I came down to that last picture And I see some dude With a giant buck In the back of his truck And I Unmistakably Know that it's moose I mean, here is a picture of Moose at Mountain Man Pond, dead. I'm in shock. I remember I called James Lawrence, I called Misty, I called my father in law, Steve Schultz. Ended up calling my dad later too. And I said, it's over. Moose is dead. I go to the guys at Mountain Man and I say, hey, I know you're not supposed to do this, but I've got to have the phone number of this guy, Harvey Rainbolt, who has killed this deer.
1: I'm sitting up there still on cloud nine, of course. I mean, everybody that I can find to tell this do- deer story to, I'm telling, right? So this I'm sitting there and I look and here comes this vehicle up the driveway and I don't recognize it. And guy gets out and he, uh, he says, you know, he introduces himself. Um, I'd like to talk to you about your deer. And boy, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to act. I could tell when he came up there that yep, somebody knew about this deer. I didn't know how he knew, but I knew that this guy knows, so I'm like, boy, I didn't really really know how to talk to him, you know, but he gets out of the vehicle and just man one of the nicest guys ever and he's like look you know i'm friends with the guy down at mountain man and i had to really talk to him about getting your number and your where your address was and all that but i wanted to come up here and talk to you and this man sat down and showed me a history of that deer that will blow your mind
0: i drive up to harvey's house And I have my laptop computer with me, and I have two years of matching sheds. I go knock on his door, and I say, man, I heard you killed a big deer. Congratulations. I I wanted him to know that I I I wasn't mad at him. I was there to celebrate with him. And I was there to add meaning to this deer that he had killed. And I said, man, have you got a minute? And we went to his back porch and sat down, and I opened up my laptop, and I began to tell him the story that started in 2008 with a little two-and-a-half-year-old deer that had a side that looked like a moose antler, and how I tried to kill that deer, and how the next year he grew to a 125-inch 10-point, then a 145-inch 10-point with kickers, and then down to a 135-inch deer, and then up to the rack that we're sitting there looking at, which was 188 inches and three-eighths, and the incredible saga and the amount of time and energy and emotion that I spent hunting that deer. And I, I really was happy for Harvey. And it was clear that he was a woodsman and he recognized what he'd done. I ended up giving Harvey both sets of sheds of moose. I just felt like they belonged to him, And with that rack. And when I heard his full side of the story and how this, what this deer would mean to him, even in the decades to come, I recognized that it's just a lesson in life. Like you you think things are supposed to go a certain way. And, you know, I had scripted out in my mind how I was going to kill this deer. And I didn't. I don't hold on to deer that tight anymore something that is as beyond and far out of our control as a wild whitetail buck. No man has right to claim it. Nobody deserves that deer. Harvey didn't deserve it. I sure didn't deserve it, but we just get what we get, and there is, I believe, God's sovereignty is involved in everything that we do. Now, even 10 years later, Harvey and I have, have become good friends we've stayed in touch harvey no longer lives in that spot it's clear that that deer was very very meaningful to him even life-changing and to this day he and i both celebrate that we both got to hunt for a big buck deer named moose and we absolutely love it. I believe one of the greatest things a person can have is passion, but with it comes high highs and low lows. It takes some guts to have passion. You gotta be brave. Today we've heard four stories of bucks that got away and four that didn't, and it'd be hard to say which ones had the most value. All I know is that I'm grateful every day for the wild and wooly place that we live that holds whitetail deer. Whether it be a backyard suburban buck or a wilderness beast, it makes no difference. Whitetail country in all its forms is special. As the world becomes increasingly urbanized, I cherish my personal connection to the natural world and I'm grateful every day that I'm a whitetail hunter. I hope you have a great season. And remember, grunt stop a walking deer getting to your stand plenty early, Mo Shepard. Don't dip skull. Being late for Christmas dinner is only excusable if you bring home two big bucks like the boss that you are. And don't let your heart get too tied up on a big buck because he might just break it. And probably most importantly, celebrate the success of others If you get your mind right, your neighbor's success is your success too. Thanks so much for listening to Bear Grease. Let me know which story you enjoyed the most in this series. And check out Phelps Game Call's new line of grunt calls. I really like the Alpha and Beta Pro calls. They sound great. I look forward to talking with all the folks on the Render podcast next week. So between now and then, we'll kill a big buck. Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a Snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com and use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent about going to the gym on a regimented schedule, and it's made a lot of difference in my life. Therapy helps you find your strengths So that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Grease today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Grease.